Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to the book of Job. The book of Job, we're going to be focusing on chapters 1 and 2 this morning, going up to chapter 2, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, a brown hardcover Bible, and it's on page 359, going to page 360. There you will find Job chapter 1 and 2. If you're not a Christian, um, it's it's spelled like Job, but um, Christians have always said Job, so that's just what I've been taught, so that's what we say. So it's spelled the same way as Job. We're not misreading it. That's, that's intentional when we say Job, okay? That's his name. So we're going to read about Job here in Job 1, verses 1 through 5. We'll read the whole section, but we'll do it in parts as I preach through it. So we're just going to look at Job 1, 1 through 5 for our scripture reading, and then we'll pray. Hear then the word of the Lord as God profiles the main character of this book in large measure, Job. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned Having cursed God in their hearts, this was Job's regular practice. Actually, let's go to verse 12. So verse 6. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay your hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Father in heaven, we praise you that we can call you Father. You are our Abba, our Dad, our Father, our King. And we have just sung some sweet truths about how you will sustain us with your strength and give us hope in this broken world. When we consider here the life of Job, we feel our weakness, we feel our frailty, we feel how vulnerable and fragile our faith is. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit, your almighty, infinitely powerful Holy Spirit, to come and give us spiritual strength in the inner man so that Christ would dwell afresh in our hearts this morning by faith. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word, Confront us in our sin, rebuke and discipline us 
and may we be zealous and repent. Thank you, Father, for this word that we read and that we will meditate on now. We ask for your help here and even in the children's classes. They hear your word. May the gospel be proclaimed and may your spirit open hearts to receive the gospel and have new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I still remember where I was 15 years ago today on 9-11. A friend down the hall at the Master's University now, the Master's University, knocked on our door and told us around 5-something in the morning that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. So we all woke up and made our way down to the student center. We, didn't have, we don't have TVs in the dorm room at the Master's University. And so we made our way down to the student center, and there was a big screen set up with a projector, and we watched, like many of you watched, on the news as one building was up in smoke, not knowing what was going on. If you're old enough and an American, you probably remember where you were when 9-11 happened that morning. If you're not an American and you're here this morning, we're glad for you to be here. And um, that was a very tragic day in our country and one that many of us remember well. It's, it's crazy now. I, I saw a survey of or a college professor said, I asked how many of my students, my freshman students, remember where they were at 9-11 and almost no one could raise their hands. Yeah. That's, that's how quickly time has it can almost seem like yesterday to some of us, though, right? Yeah. Now, let me give you a few facts here about 9-11 just to, to remind you or to tell you if you haven't heard this before. On any given workday, up to 50,000 employees worked in the World Trade Center with another 40,000 going in and out throughout the day. In 2001, New York City fire evacuation procedures only required mandatory evacuations for floors immediately surrounding the fire. After, a plane, after the plane struck Building 1 of the World Trade Center, Building 2 employees were actually told to stay in the building initially, tragically. The attack on the World Trade Center 9/11, on 9-11 resulted in the largest loss of life by foreign attack on American soil. 18 people, that's not a lot, 18 people were rescued from the rubble of the World Trade Center site. Cases of post-traumatic stress are common among 9-11 survivors and rescue workers. Respiratory problems, you see how people are covered in debris, like asthma and lung inflammation, also developed at abnormal rates and uh, for those in and around the World Trade Center during and after those attacks. On September 11th, nearly 3,000 people were killed. 400 police officers and firefighters as the terrorists had accomplished part of their plan. Then there was a building that, or a plane that flew into the Pentagon, another plane, Flight 93, that was grounded um, due, to, due to those on the flight fighting back after hearing of the news of the other planes. The loss of life and the pain was massive to the country. And I'm, I wonder if some, would, some are here who, who are bereaved personally, if you knew anyone personally who was attacked. I mean... Many in our country, certainly Christians in our country, were briefed, right? Some Christians in the, in the tragedy were killed. Some Christians had family, spouses, brothers, sisters, parents, children who were in those buildings when it went down. The loss of immediate family members was huge as well. And so we ask this question as we think about Job on the 15th anniversary of 
I don't want to be hard on on the Christians who are bereaved, but we could ask this question. Did the Christians who are bereaved praise God? Not for the attack, of course. Shouldn't praise God for that. But but the way Job did here, if you're familiar with the story of Job, he gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Did they did they did they trust God in the midst of excruciating heartache? And if so, and I think a lot of Christians did, why in the world would a Christian thank God for his mercy and grace and control in, in the light of such a tragedy like that, in such horrific loss? Where will, and then we can ask the question for ourselves, where will we today get the strength to praise God when our horrific trials come our way? And it's going to come our way. Unless you're going to be suddenly killed in a car accident or something very sudden, you're going to face trial and pain. It's inevitable. Unless Christ, or unless Christ comes and we do pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come today. But if he doesn't come, then you will suffer. And you will have pain. And you will either praise and trust God with tears in your eyes, or you won't. How... How do we get that strength? You know, I can't sing this song, Blessed Be Your Name, um, with the words that are here. I, I, I did the first verse because I wasn't fully engaged. And then the second verse, second time I got to the chorus, I reminded myself of the way I like to sing the song, which is, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, I, I sing, please help me say. Because I'm not, you know... I'm looking out here at you, brothers and sisters, and you have suffered far more than I can imagine in your own life. I'm fairly young, so, I, you know, you could look at me and, what does this guy know about suffering? Not much. Not yet. But I, so when I, when I sing a song like this, I think, Lord, help me say, I can't imagine where I'll find the strength to say, blessed be your name, if my five kids are taken from me. I, I know I know that he could give grace and his grace is sufficient, but I I just I, I don't feel strong enough to be like still I will say. I mean maybe I will and maybe it's my lack of faith, but I feel very shaky singing a song like this, knowing that, you know, God could replay the tape a year from now or next week if tragedy strikes. You know, you, you wake up one day and life is normal, the next day it's the day that changes your life forever. Right? It happens. So where are we going to get the strength to praise God in situations like that? Well, this story, this, the sermon's going to break up into two parts. My outline is really the second part of the, the sermon. We're going to spend about 10 or maybe 20 minutes on the story itself. We're just going to tell the story and walk through the story. And then we'll pull out five reasons on, how, on why we should be praising God and trusting God, even with tears in our eyes, in tragedy. Okay? So that, that's, our, that's our outline. Well, first we'll look at the story. And there's five scenes to the story. In scene one, we read it for you, uh, in Job 1, 1 through 5. In scene one, Job is profiled. In verse 1, he lives in a, in a country called Uz. They're in the Middle East. Okay? And his name is Job. Job is not a fictional character. This is not a parable. Though there's large poetry here, this is an epic poem book of the Bible. No other book in the Bible like it. Actually, one of the greatest books in the Bible in some ways. This one of the greatest books in world history in terms of suffering. This is a great gift to humanity that God would give us a book like the book of Job. Nothing like it in, in world literature to minister to people who are in suffering. And so here's Job. He's a man of character. Look at verse 1. He has perfect integrity. 
or he's blameless and he fears God and turns away from evil. And those two things go together. You can't fear God and not turn away from evil. If you fear God, you'll turn away from evil. And if you don't fear God, you will not run from evil. You will indulge in evil. You'll make excuses for evil. You'll stay there in evil and there won't be any flinching or conviction that would cause you to run. But when you fear God, you turn away from evil. And Job did that. So he was a man of character. He was someone you could trust. He was an honest man. I've heard one, one man say, one non-Christian man say to one of, in a, in a former church I was part of, one of the pastors on staff regarding his character. A non-Christian said, I would, I would give this man my wallet and trust that he wouldn't, he wouldn't touch anything. That's the kind of integrity Job had. You, you trusted him. If, if you gave him all the passwords to all your accounts, you just knew you wouldn't. You'd sleep at night like a baby, knowing that he would not violate your trust. He was that kind of man of integrity and character. Okay? So that was his character. In verse 2, he's a man of tremendous wealth. He has three, seven sons and three daughters. Seven sons and three daughters. So I'm trailing him just a little bit for now in terms of the kids. But... Um, but that, that, that's actually a, you know, even today, kids are a sign of wealth. I mean, people don't think of it today. Think of, people think of kids as a hassle. Christians of all people should not think of kids as a hassle or a nuisance. Psalm 127 makes very clear that children are a blessing from the Lord. And, and you, you actually are a little bit poorer at the front end. But if you, have a, if you raise your family well and you keep a tight family, you actually end up spending your money better. You become a better steward of your resources. And people, statistically, it's just proven, people are wealthier when they have children, not less wealthy, on the whole, statistically speaking. Anyways, and that's true here. Here's Job with, with his uh, seven sons and three daughters. And look at his, his possessions here in verse 3. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, because it's 500 yoke. There's two on a yoke, so that's 1,000 oxen and 500 female donkeys. That's, that's your riches in those days. It's livestock. This is the patriarchal times before Moses, maybe around Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere in there, maybe even pre-Abraham, possibly. Noah could be pre-Noahic, possibly. Certainly before Moses, though, because he's making sacrifices here. And once Moses comes, you can't make sacrifices to Yahweh outside of the tabernacle and priesthood. So here's Job. He's a rich man. He's very wealthy, and he's a spiritual leader. In verse 4 and 5, he makes sacrifices preemptively for his home. He leads his home spiritually. He prays for his kids. He calls them to an account as he helps confess their sins and, and, and leads them into self-examination and repentance and faith in God. That's what a father should do. That's what a husband should do is lead their family spiritually. And Job did that. I'm assuming if Job had grandkids, he would do the same with them. Whenever they came around grandpa, grandpa would be telling them the word of God, reminding them about the joy of, of the grace of God and examining your heart and making sure you're repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus. So, so Job was a religious man here, and that was his regular practice. He was a spiritual leader. That's scene one. Let's go to scene two. So that's a setting. Now in scene two, which we read verses... 6 through 12, God is in heaven and the sons of God, the angels are walking before God and guess who's among the parade? Satan. I imagine Satan sticking out like a sore thumb, but I, I mean, we don't know exactly. Maybe they were all, were they, were they all fallen angels or not fallen angels? I don't know. But Satan is there among the throng. They're parading through and then Satan is there and, and God, God calls Satan out. Notice that. Look at verse 7. The Lord asks Satan. So who's the one initiating here? God or Satan? 
God. This is very strange when you, when you start looking at the details here. God is initiating. The Lord asks, Satan, have you seen my servant Job? He's a man of perfect integrity. He fears me. He loves me. He's a great person. You know, have you seen him? Because don't you, you know, first, first Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil is prowling around like a what? Like a roaring lion looking for someone to what? Devour. Satan chews up people's faith. He chews up their trust in God. He chews up their worship of God and he spits it back out. You will not trust in God and he will make sure of it. That's what he does as a roaring lion. He will chew you up and, and, and try to steal your joy and trust and hope in the Lord. That's what he'll do. And so as God knows, that's what Satan does. Hey, where are you? I've been roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Have you seen Job? Have you tried this guy? Wow. Man of perfect integrity. This is strange that the Lord would, would bring up Job, but he does. And then what does Satan say? You know what? Here's why. Here's why Job does that. Because you give him all the goodies. You provide for him and you protect him and you put a hedge around him, a hedge of protection. You know, it would be thorns to keep marauders out from, from taking your crops. You put a hedge around it, a protection, a wall. So, of course, he's going to praise you because he loves your gifts. Job is a spoiled brat. That's what he is. Job is a spoiled brat. He gets what he wants. He never has a trouble in his life. And that's why, that's why he praises you. Of course, he'd praise you. Because if he stopped praising you, you'd stop protecting him and stop giving him good gifts. And then what would his life be? So Satan wants to prove to God that Job is only godly for God's gifts. In other words, God, you bribe Job to love you. He's only loyal to you because he's self-centered and you are Job-centered. You cater to his self-centeredness. Now, God wants to show Satan that Job is loyal and faithful because Job is actually God-centered and not self-centered. And that God is Job's greatest good and gift. Even if everything else goes away. God is his treasure. That's what God wants to show. Is God worth it? That's the question. Actually, that's the question of this chapter. Is God worth it to you? Is he valuable enough to you? Is he your treasure? With a capital T. Or do you have other treasures that you treasure more than God? That's the question for Job. And that's the accusation Satan's making. Job doesn't really treasure you. Have you ever had a friend or, you know, if you're in business and you network with people and then um, they're nice to you because they want something out of you? As soon as they realize, salespeople, right? As soon as they realize that you, you don't want what they're offering, their, their demeanor just switches, right? That, that's, that's what Satan's saying here. Job, Job doesn't really love you. He's like a salesman. He's just, he's loving you because you're giving him stuff. And if you stop giving it, he'd stop being interested in you. And so we, we see here the, the, the challenge to God. So what does God do in response? God, in verse 12, what does God do? He gives Satan what? He gives Satan Job. He gives him permission, right? Fine. Everything he has is yours. The only what? There's one restriction. Don't what? Don't touch him. You can touch everything around him. Everything he has is yours. Just don't touch him. This is interesting as well. God sets boundaries, right? And so we go to scene three. That's scene two. Scene three here. So Satan leaves the throne room of God and is now back on earth. And what does he do? We pick it up in verse 13. 
One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, which was typical for them to do. It's kind of a preview. And the author kind of leaves that fact there. The same day that they're all hanging out at a house, verse 14, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Messenger, out of breath, running, as all his friends were slaughtered and killed. So now Job is out some money, and he's out some of his friends and loyal employees. His servants were not just, they didn't just quit, they were killed. Imagine you're, if you're a boss and you have people working under you and they're all killed except for one. And you're friends with some of them, a lot of them probably. And if you're a godly man, you're probably friends with all of them. So Sabaeans from the south strike and steal a thousand oxen and 500 donkeys and kill some servants. Then reading on in verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and reported a lightning storm struck from heaven. It says in some older versions, the fire struck from heaven It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So you have marauders in the south killing people. You have lightning striking and starting fires and burning up more wealth and killing more servants. It's not from people now. This is from natural disaster, right? And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now he's out how many servants? It says that he had... It it says a very large number of servants. We don't know how many servants. But he just lost hundreds of them, probably, and has two left out of the hundreds. Then you get to the next one, verse 17. That messenger was still speaking. Imagine this, right? When yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans from the north. Now, they're from the north. They formed three bands, and they made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. More servants killed. So you got three servant survivors that were on work that day. All the rest of them killed. Two groups by marauders and bandits and one by natural disaster. He lost all his wealth. I mean, if you do the count here, well, it doesn't count here, but the count earlier, he lost all his wealth and lost all his servants except three. It's a pretty bad day. It's going to get worse. Look at verse 18. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters, man, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And it's not like they're partying sinfully. That's not quite the point. They're just celebrating as a good family would. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He lost all 10 adult children. And he got this news all in a matter of a minute. Two minutes, perhaps. Two minutes, his life changes, right? Flipped completely upside down. So God here gave Satan the green light and Satan wasted no time killing and destroying. Now, Job was... The greatest man in that area, it says. Um, I look for the most, the richest man in, Amer- in in Los Angeles. He's a Chinese surgeon who owns a pharmaceutical company and is worth like thirteen and a half billion dollars. He has two children and a wife. Two children and a wife. I thought, well, what if, what if it would be like for him to lose 
13 billion. But let me go into the Christian world a little bit because some of you know Dave Ramsey. Some of you guys know Dave Ramsey. He's a rich guy, has, has um, three children, has a wife, and has many employees working under him. I mean, he's worth 55 million, at least according to the internet. That's his net worth. Christian, Christian brother. Um, he does financial advising. Um, what if that happened to him? Christian man fears God. I mean, I know Dave Ram- as far as I know of Dave Ramsey, he fears God, loves the Lord, loves the word, loves the gospel, is generous, has many employees, has a great business, is rich. If he lost all $55 million, lost his, his three kids and all of his employees except for three, how would he respond? That's, that's the type of situation we're dealing with all in one day. From, different situ- from four different tragedies all in one day. And what's Job's response in the end of scene one, or scene three? Look at verse 20. Then Job stood up and tore his robe and shaved his head, a sign of mourning and grief. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh, or blessed be the name of Yahweh the Lord. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Now, this is interesting. He says, naked I came in, naked I'm going to leave. So, yeah, I had a lot, $55 million, lots of employees, children, but what did I come in the world with? Nothing. What am I going to leave with? Nothing. So, in one sense, I'm, not, I'm breaking even here. I'm not losing anything, in a sense. Now, that's hard for us to think of because we grip our temporal possessions as if they're eternal. And so, this response doesn't make sense to us because we don't, Remember that we were naked when we came out of the womb and we're going to die and, and return to the grave naked and have nothing. We, God, God gives us gifts as we live life and we accumulate them and we think we're going to keep them as if they're ours forever. And they're not, at least not in this world. They are going to be ours forever in a different form in the new earth for those who are in Christ. It's like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet. Some people have bigger plates than others. Some people eat more than others. But you came into that buffet with what? Nothing. You're going to leave with nothing. You might eat more than others, but this is all my food. This is great. Yeah, well, you're going to get full at some point. You're going to be done. You're going to stuff yourself, try to get your money's worth, right? Maybe wait a few hours, go for a round two and round three, maybe. But eventually, you're going to leave that all-you-can-eat buffet. And you're going to leave with nothing. That's, and so, no, I mean, no one starts crying when they leave the all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Like, oh, I have my food. I had so much food and I lost it all. What a tragedy. It's not a tragedy because we understand that we came in with nothing. We're supposed to leave with nothing. We get it. But in life, we forget it. You came with nothing. You're leaving with Job didn't forget it here. He understood. I came with nothing. God gave. God took away. He's crying. It's not like he's happy about it. It's not flippant. But he still praises God anyways. And notice he says, who, who gave? Who gives? In verse 21, who gives? The Lord. Who takes away? The Lord. Who took away? What did the Lord take away? His servants, his wealth, and his children. Who took it away? The Lord? Couldn't he have said the Chaldeans and Sabaeans took it away? Wouldn't that be accurate? Couldn't he say Satan took it away? Did he say that? What did he say? Who took it away? The Lord did. 
That's strange. And then, in case you're thinking, Job, you're wrong. You're sinning. Don't say God did it. Don't say God gave it. Don't say God took it away. It wasn't God. It was Satan. What does it say in verse 22? Throughout all this, Job did not what? Sin or blame God for anything. God took away, but I am not blaming God. And God, and I'm not sinning against God and saying that God took it away. Yes, Satan did. Yes, the Chaldeans and Sabaeans did. But ultimately, who did? God did. God did. That's scene three. Let's pick up the pace here a little bit. Scene four, God, uh, Satan comes back. Look at chapter two, verse one. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came in with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth. Satan answered him, walking around on it. Verse three. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you not considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still remains in his, he still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. So who was right in round one, God or Satan? God. Job did not curse God, right? So God wins round one. And so he says, see, I won. Satan says, no, no, you didn't win yet. Skin for skin, verse four. Satan answered, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. See, God, you're still protecting him because he's walking around still fully healthy. Strike his health, and this guy will certainly curse you to to your face. What does God say? Nope, Satan, you went too far. That's enough. I already won. Is that what God says? If, if you're Job, you probably wish that's all God said, right? But no, verse 6. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, He is in your power, only what? Spare his life. And so that's the end of verse, that's the end of scene 4. God and Satan talk again. It's a new deal. Now it's even worse. I mean, not, worse in a sense. It's even more. Now it's his own personal health. So now we get to scene 5, the last scene of our, of our time together, verses 7 through 10. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. So we don't know exactly what this skin disease is. There are different speculations, but no one can be sure what it was. There was it's not a precise Hebrew word that gives us precise you know, skin disease. But these boils that covered the, the top of his head to the bottom of his feet means you can't get comfortable anywhere, right? You can't lay in any direction. You lay on your back, boils. You lay on your front, boils. Lay on your side, boils. Stand up, boils. No matter what you do, you're in pain and discomfort, extreme pain and discomfort. And so he scrapes his body, trying to maybe relieve himself of of some itches, perhaps. We don't know. Here Job grieves and mourns again, sitting in dust and ashes. You know, as you read through the rest of Job, let me just list to you other symptoms and things he suffered physically and mentally or spiritually. He had painful seeping sores. He was unrecognizable to his friends, probably lost a lot of weight. He was fearful and anxious. He had seeping scabs with infections and worms. He lost his appetite. He had sleeplessness and couldn't sleep at night. He had nightmares when he could sleep. He was vision impaired. His sight was going away. He had indigestion. His skin was turning black and dead and falling off. He had achy bones and he had bitterness of soul. Man. 
So what's going to happen? Is Satan write about Job now? This is quite a list of ailments. Well, let's read on. Verse 9. His wife said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife encourages Job to curse God. Now, what does Job do in verse 10? You speak as a what? You speak as a foolish woman speaks. He's not saying you're a foolish woman. I said on Wednesday night in Bible study, sometimes I quote this to my wife, but um, it doesn't always go over well. <laughs> no, but, um, but as, and husbands can be foolish too. So wives, you could say that to your husbands. You speak as a foolish man speaks. But, but the point here is, he's not saying she's a fool. Like you're, you're speaking like a fool right now. Like, of course, we just lost our 10 kids. We just lost all our wealth. I could understand the pain. He's not going extra hard on his wife, but he is gently saying, you know what? You're wrong to say, curse God and die. You're speaking like a foolish woman speaks. We'll, we'll meditate that on that in a second. What does Job do instead? Verse 10. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? What does your translation say? Should we accept good from God and not what? Trouble. What else? King James Version. Evil. evil. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? From who? From God. And then it says at the end, throughout all this, Job did not what? Sin with his mouth. Even in saying that, should we accept good from God and not trouble, adversity, evil? In Job saying that, that it's coming from God, he's not, he's not um, sinning. Now, Satan, so who won round two? Did Job curse God or not? No, so who won, God or Satan? God, God right, 2-0. and oh. God won, round two, right? God wins and God always wins, we know that. But God won here and Job did not curse God. Satan was counting on Job to be like the, do you remember the parable of the soils? Where the, where the word of God goes and it lands on rocky soil and thorny soil. This is in Mark chapter 4. And it says here, Jesus says in Mark 4 verse 16, um, some hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves and they're short-lived. When the pressure or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately stumble. So there's pressure and there's trial and there's pain. And when they, when they get that, they end up rejecting the word of God and rejecting the God of the word. And so that was, that's what Satan was counting on. Let me put some pressure on this guy. Let me put some trials in his life. Let's put some difficulties here. Extreme difficulties. And for sure... I've, I've, choked the word, I've choked the word out of so many people. Job's just going to be another statistic. Another notch on my belt. Well, Job was not another notch on Satan's belt. Not this time. He did not curse God. And so what's the point of the story? Here's the main point of the story. That God is worthy to be praised and valued and trusted and desired even in the most dire of circumstances. Amen. God will be and is your sufficient treasure when you lose all other treasures. Why would, why would we praise God in response to trials? Job worshipped God. He got on his face in grief, shaved head, torn clothes, and worshipped God. Where do we get that? That's what God wants us to do. God wants us to have that same power, spiritual power. And I feel so weak even saying that because I feel so weak as I imagine that happening to me. But God wants us to have the power to be able to, and here's the main thing, to praise and trust God in response to trials. God wants us to praise and trust him, even with tears in our eyes, in our trials. Why? 
Why would God want us to trust him? Five reasons. Okay, this is the second half of the message. We'll do it in 15 minutes, hopefully. Five reasons why you need to trust God and praise God and worship God, even in the most difficult of circumstances with, with grief filling your heart. Number one, and these are, some of these are, the first three are pretty short. Number one, God favors you. That's why. You should praise God because God favors you. Look at chapter one, verse one. He's a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. In verse eight, God says that he fears him and he turns away from evil. In chapter two, verse three, the same thing. Job was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. In other words, Job trusted in God. Job was a believer. Well, if you're a believer, guess whose favor is on you? God's favor is on you. God's favor is on you. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. If you trust in God, if you're a believer, God has favor on you and that's that's the result of your belief. That's also the source of your belief, actually. It's God's favor on you. So why should you praise God even when you lose everything? Because God has favor on you. He's given you eternal life. He's given you faith in Him. Not everyone has faith in God. People hear the word and reject it for their whole lives. But if you haven't, you should praise God and trust God in response to trials because not only has he given you faith and saved you, but at least for Job, Job had a pattern of of trusting God, fearing God and turning away from evil. And that's all a gift from God as well. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Any growth you have in your spiritual life is because of who? God. And so guess what? If you face trials and you have any spiritual growth in your history of your life, that's from God. God's favor is on you, so praise him, even with the tears. Number two, not only does God favor you, second reason why you should praise and trust God in response to your trials is because God limits Satan, right? God limited Satan. Satan had to ask for permission. This is not the first time or the last time Satan will ask for permission from God. We can almost make an assumption from the Bible. This might be a good theological statement to say that Satan always has to get God's permission. That he's never allowed to overstep his bounds. Satan is a fierce lion, but he's on a leash. Now, in Job's case, and in our cases often, God gives Satan sometimes a long leash, right? A really long leash. You wish he'd reel it in a little bit more. But, but he's still on a leash. God limits Satan. Satan has to ask for permission. Satan is incapable. I want you to think about that word. Satan is incapable of overpowering God's will and overstepping the boundaries. Now, does Satan want to overstep God's boundaries? Yes. Yes. But he can't. It would be like an ant trying to stop you from getting out of this door. I mean, the ant could try. But it's not. It's almost going to be as if the ant doesn't exist, right? I mean, it's really almost a non-factor to you. That's how God is in Satan. Don't think of Satan and God as almost equal powers. And it's this good versus evil, and 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 sometimes Satan has the upper hand, and sometimes God. No, it's 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 God and an ant. That's what it is. Amen. So Satan, with all his power, and he's a lot more powerful than us personally. I mean, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So we have the Spirit of God, but us on our own strength, Satan's more powerful than us, and yet. He cannot overstep God's boundaries, not even an inch. That's the second reason why we should praise God, is that God limits Satan in our trials. Third reason why we should praise and trust God in response to trials, not only because he favors us and limits Satan, but third, because he's gracious. 
What I mean by that is he's giving. He's generous. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. We sang it. And by the way, that's why I chose this song. It's just because it's straight out of Job. So it's like you, you have to sing the song when you're talking about Job, right? Especially this passage. But he says here, the Lord gives. That's grace, right? The, the gift of God, the giving of God, the generosity of God to you is a gift. And God is gracious. He's generous. Good gifts come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 17. That God is good, and every good gift you enjoy is from God. Enter his, pray, enter, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's gracious. He's kind. He's generous. Like we said earlier, you came in this world with nothing. And so if you get 10 children and you get to enjoy them, and they were adult children. Some people have lost their children in infancy, right? You get to enjoy your children for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. Is that not a gift? I'm not making, I'm not saying, I'm not making light of the tragedy, but is that not a gift? Yes. That you got to enjoy those servants, Job, and, and you got to enjoy that wealth. Well, while, while many are, are scraping by on poverty, you got to live in wealth for so many years. And Job realizes this was a gift from God. God gave this as a gift. He's gracious. Job understood, yes, you work hard for your money and you work hard for it, but even then it's still ultimately God's gift because even your hard work is not up to you. Do do you have any friends who have had disability? Was it their fault? Oftentimes not, right? Why why aren't you disabled if you're able to, to earn? It's still God's gift, right? You can say, I worked hard for this. Yes, but who gave you the strength? Who gave you the air? Who gave you the food? Who gave you the parents to raise you? Who gave you everything? God, when you came in, you had nothing. So everything you have is from God. Every good thing you've ever experienced is from God. And therefore, acknowledge him as gracious and good to you. Even when you have great loss. That's the only way you're going to get strength for it. Is to praise him as gracious. Now, these last two are a little bit more loaded, so let's go to number four. Number, so, why should you praise God and trust God in trial? Number one, because, because he favors you. Number two, because he limits Satan. Number three, because he's gracious and good to you. He's given good gifts to you. Number four, because God has a name, and his name is Yahweh. Look at verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. Yahweh gives, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh takes away, praise the name of Yahweh. Why should you praise and trust God in your trials? Because God is Yahweh. That's his name. My kids call me dad, that's not my name. Some, some of you might call me pastor, that's not my name. My name is PJ, that's my personal name, right? God, God is God, that's his role. Because he's the only one, you could, it's the same person, but, but God is God. That's his role. Yahweh is his name. In the New Testament, Jesus is his name. God, Yahweh. Okay, and so what does it mean that God is Yahweh? So what? Why, why should I praise God that his name is Yahweh? That's great. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Exodus three thirteen and 15. Moses was about to bust the Israelites out of Egypt, and Moses said, well, what if the Israelites asked me, who sent me? Or, you know, what's, what's your name? What would I say? And God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's the big deal of being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who cares about those guys? Well, what did he do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He promised them that through them, all the earth that's cursed will be blessed. All the families of the earth. God will reverse the curse. He promises, he covenants that he will reverse the curse among people from every tribe, nation, and language. He will give the blessing to them who are cursed. And in the end, he will bless with a a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, God will keep his promise to save sinners and reverse the curse. That's the covenant. So when God says, my name is Yahweh, he's saying, I am the God who saves sinners and reverses the curse. And that's why you praise him. Not just because his name is Yahweh, but what his name means. That he's the God of the covenant who will bring blessing to us who deserve a curse. In the end, and we'll get to this as we go through Job, Job doesn't need an answer to his problem. And you don't either. If you're asking the question, which I don't blame you for asking, it's natural to ask, why am I going through what I'm going through? What, what in the world is going on? Why is this happening to me? When you ask that what we learn from Job is you don't need an answer to that question. You don't need an answer to the, a specific answer or a comprehensive answer to why you're going through what you're going through. Number one, God, won't, God doesn't promise to give us an answer. And number two, at least not in this world. And number two, even if God gave us an answer, it's doubtful that we'd understand it anyways. Right? I mean, God is God and we're not. So, um, so we don't need a specific answer or comprehensive answer to our problems. What we need is a name. We need Yahweh. We need the God who keeps his covenant. The God who says, I am your God and you will be my people. We need God in our suffering. Not an answer. Not a simple explanation. We need God himself to show up. And that's what God tells us. That he will give his blessing. To us us who deserve what? What do we deserve? Do we deserve blessing? What do we deserve? The curse, right? Hell. Judgment. We are commanded to trust and treasure God in trials and, in our, and, and have complete devotion and worship to him. But have you failed in this? Have you failed to consider a great joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, James tells us to do? Have you failed in that? To not bow down and, and praise God or take a song like Blessed Be Your Name and just sing it? If you've failed, and I assume you have like I have failed many times in my life, We could feel our inability to rise to such a worthy and righteous response. Don't you just feel weak as we think about this chapter? I just, I just feel so weak. Uh, I feel like a a spiritual wimp when I think about Job and think about this situation and imagine myself. I feel so unable. But there is someone who was, who is able. I'm not talking about Job. Job didn't curse God here. He will sin though and repent later. True, Job is a blameless man who suffered and he didn't curse God. But later, God would curse another blameless man who suffered unjustly for sinners, who knew no sin. Job was an innocent sufferer, but, but later after Job, a perfectly innocent sufferer would come. And not only would he not curse God, Jesus would obey God and let God curse him for sins that he did not commit. And so Jesus dies on the cross, taking our curse on the tree for sins, for our sins in his place.
We deserve the curse, but Christ gets it. And now we get the blessing. So now sinners like you and me who trust in Jesus and turn from our sins, not only do we get forgiveness, we get the power to respond like Job. We have the Holy Spirit now. And so I do have a little bit of confidence. Not in myself. I have no confidence in myself if this happened to me. But I can have a lot of confidence in God that his grace will be sufficient for me because Christ was cursed for me and rose from the dead. Christian, you can and you must praise God when you're in trials because you rest on the power of Christ who trusted God for us. And so now you can trust God in trial. If you're not a Christian, we have a very simple message for you. The main message of the Bible is this. First of all, if you're not a Christian, you're here. Thank you for being here. I understand that it could be difficult to to visit in a place like this and If you're not a Christian, or maybe you've thought you're a Christian, but you're not sure, here's the main message of the Bible. This is what God wants you to know, that God is holy and he made you. And that we, as his creatures, deserve to reflect and enjoy him. We are called to do that. We're responsible to do that. But we have rebelled against God in our sin, and because of that, we deserve God's curse. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath. We're guilty, and we feel the shame of our guilt often in our lives. That's why we hide. And God says the wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. But God sent his son, Jesus, like I just told everyone here. And Jesus became the curse for us. He died on the cross for our sins after living a perfect life that we should have lived. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. So that if you, not non-Christian friend who's here today, if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus today, you can be saved. God will save you. He'll forgive you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to begin to transform you. And you will have life, eternal life now and forever. And so I invite you, if you're not a Christian, to trust in Jesus. Call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. saved. Call on him. He hears you. He knows what you're wrestling with. Call on him and trust him in trials. Christians, I I come back to you and say, I, I quote the song or the poem, which became a song, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, and when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. You know that he's good. In the end, you have this covenant blessing. And the covenant gift of God, God's ultimate gift is what? What's God's ultimate gift? Or salvation, you might say. Let me change the question, then you'll know the answer. Who is God's ultimate gift? Jesus. Jesus. Or you could even say himself, right? God's ultimate gift is himself. And that's why God can take everything away. But if if he takes himself away, then we're really lost. But if he takes everything else away but himself... We aren't lost. And that's what Satan said. He'll, t- he'll, t- he'll take you as, your Lord, as his Lord and Savior, but not as, as his treasure. You're not really his treasure, God. You're just his Lord and Savior. You're his get-out-of-jail-free card. A lot of people who say they're Christians treat God as a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's what he is. He's not their treasure. He's their Lord and Savior to get them out of hell, and then they live however they want. That's not salvation, brothers and sisters. That's not conversion. That's not true Christianity. That's a false profession of faith. You accept God as your, as your Lord, Savior, and treasure. Amen. That's true salvation. To accept God as your treasure means that you need to be born again. Because you have no power to treasure God over your, your job, your family, your friends, your toys, your health. You don't have, you don't have the power to, to treasure God above them. But if God's spirit would open your eyes to see the beauty and value, glory of Christ, you'll give up everything 
to follow him. And that's what you Christians have done, haven't you? That's why Psalm 63, 3 says, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. Or Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me say a word of application to our church family here. We'll do our fifth point next week. Let me say a word of application to our church family here. Church membership, a church membership role. So I got a role here of, our, of 70 of our members, not, not the whole role. The reason why it's a big deal is because those we affirm as saved are those who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if he's really their Lord, then he'll also be their treasure. I'm not saying brothers and sisters there are people who've been transferring to other churches. But we need to know who are those here who are committed to following and treasuring Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure. We're Baptists. You know what that means? We believe in terms of church membership. Anyone know Baptist doctrine? Regenerate church membership. Have you ever heard that phrase? Regenerate church membership. Regenerate means, generate means to birth. Re means what? Again. So born what? Born again. That only born again believers should be members. That's why we don't baptize babies. Because membership is restricted to to those who profess God as their Lord and Savior. And I want to say, on the basis of Job 1, as their treasure. Because that's what Satan was saying about Job. He he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really trust you. You're not really his treasure. But true Christians treasure God above everything. Take away their church. Take away their health. Take away their family. Take away their friends. Take away everything. Persecute them. Beat them. Kill them. As long as they can't take away God, a Christian's good. He'll cry, he'll scream, he'll mourn, he'll shave his head, he'll tear his clothes. But he will not in the end, he will not in the end curse God. Because God is his treasure. And so brothers and sisters, we need to encourage each other in that, don't we? I mean, because look around, we have, I was just talking to Marion this morning, but we have brothers and sisters in our church who who are suffering. And we will always have people in our church who are suffering. And so we need to to be with them, to pray with them, to uphold them, and to point them to our true treasure. Because naked we came out of the womb, naked we will return. We can't, just like at the all-you-can-eat buffet, we can't, we can't force the food to stay on the plate. for our, As much as we want everyone to keep the food on their plate, when they leave, we just can't do it. We're all going to die. There's a point for man to die once, then comes judgment. So what do we need to do in the meantime? We need to do Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which says, Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking our gathering together, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the what? The day drawing near. We're one week closer to death. Everyone here, look around. Everyone here is one week closer to dying. You're de- you know your birth date. You're, you're getting farther away from your birth date and closer to your death date every week. So here we are. We see each other and we're all getting closer to death. We're all terminal. We're all going to die. Unless Christ comes and we pray God comes, but if not, we're all going to die soon. Life is a vapor. And so every week it becomes even more urgent than last week to encourage each other, to gospelize each other, to pray for each other, to hug each other and to greet each other and to deal with sins amongst each other and to point each other to Christ, our true treasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you. This is a hard word, Lord, because we all feel our weakness and our sin and our failure. 
And yet we praise you for Jesus Christ, our true treasure. We praise you that you favor us in Christ, that you limit Satan. We trust and praise you because you're gracious and you give every good gift we've ever tasted and experienced and ever will in this life and in the one after the resurrection. And we praise you. We praise you because you are Yahweh. You bless us with yourself. The greatest blessing of all blessings, the greatest treasure above all treasures, the greatest gift above all gifts. And when you take all our gifts away, we will still sing, we'd rather have Jesus. And so we pray that as we sing to you, that we would trust you now. Work in our church family. In Jesus' name, amen.